Hey, you over there. Yeah, you. The teacher sitting in front of the computer, staring at your 2023 Fund for Teachers grant application. The one you've labored over for months. The one containing the aspirations you have for yourself, your students, your school, and your community. I've got some valuable insider information that can help you more confidently push submit by January the 19th. You're going to want to hear this. Fund for Teachers Chief of Staff Stephanie Ashrell wants to share some insight gleaned from her 18 years with the organization, observations, suggestions, and advice that can strengthen your proposal and ease your stress. This is an episode of Fund for Teachers, the podcast you don't want to miss. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. To learn about the leadership of Fund for Teachers Fellows leveraging the power of our grants, listen to our library of podcasts from the past three seasons. To become a Fund for Teachers Fellow, listen for the next 25 minutes. Stephanie Ashwell joined Fund for Teachers staff in 2005 after graduating from the University of St. Thomas in Houston. She's contributed to the organization in numerous capacities, currently is our chief of staff. However, her greatest joy comes from interacting with our fellows, something she did as a program officer for most of her tenure. As such, she's seen pretty much everything that has to do with our grants, and today she's passing on some pro tips for anyone putting the finishing touches on their grant application due Thursday, January the 19th at 5 p.m. Central. Stephanie, you have worked at Fun for Teachers for, we we had to go into the archives to figure this out, but 18 years. Yeah. So you're pretty much the resident expert on all things Fund for Teachers. And so the reason that we are doing this podcast today is not to encourage people to apply, although we we always do encourage people to apply. But at this point, with the deadline approaching January the 19th at 5 p.m. Central Time, uh, we really want to support those teachers who are in the thick of putting together their proposal. At this point, most teachers have figured out what they want to do. They've researched how they want to do it, where they want to do it. And now it's just a matter of kind of piecing it together through our online application. And I thought you would be the best person to walk us through some areas that you've seen teachers need some guidance on, that you could provide some valuable insight into um, have even a better better opportunity to be funded. So that is the purpose of this particular podcast. So I think with that introduction in mind, I'd like to start with in your 18 years here, what are some trends that you've seen from our applicants? A twofold answer. Teaching hasn't changed much in about 18 years. Kids still need the same things they've always needed from their teachers. And the teacher's willingness to respond to those needs has not changed. It doesn't really matter what's going on in the outside world. Students are always the top priority. That has never changed. I do think that we see cultural shifts are always felt in the classroom first. And so any time that something is happening in the world around us, teachers are the front line and they are always the first to respond. And whether that's politics, science, climate, the pandemic, that's what we see in our applications is what is happening in the world. And oftentimes before the rest of the world even really knows it's happening. Case in point is after COVID, we saw a real spike in teachers seeking out uh, social emotional learning opportunities and wellness opportunities because 
they saw not just learning deficits as a result of those two years, but real emotional struggles on on how to regulate, how to be back in the classroom and some trauma response of, of what they experienced in their homes and in their communities as a result of that time. It's a perfect example and also really indicative of who Fund for Teachers is because it wasn't just about the student's need for trauma response, the student's need for wellness and self-care, but teachers really looked at themselves and said, I can't keep doing this for my students without myself. And that's really the beauty of Fund for Teachers is it may start with what the teacher needs as a professional, but ultimately it's how can I do this Fund for Teachers project to improve my students and school community? Yeah, and you've put together a lot of resources that are on our online application center on our website at fundforteachers.org to walk teachers through the process of identifying what they can pursue. And that just makes me think of, of how you really have encouraged teachers to be reflective and looking at what your students need and also looking at gaps that they have, that they are honest enough and vulnerable enough to say, I don't have that skill. I don't have that in my toolkit. And it seems to me that fellowships that are the most meaningful and usually are the most successful at getting funded are those that are reflective of those two things, what my students need and and the skills I do not have to meet those needs. I think that's true. So Fund for Teachers, I'll keep saying this over and over again, is is really focused on the educator themselves. We're super unique in that um, regard that it really starts at the core with the teacher. But something I want to shift around about what people think about that, how they think about that is our projects don't necessarily come out of a deficit. They come out of a passion or they come out of a demand from their students. It's not necessarily that something is wrong. It's that something is going really great with their students or students need to be more challenged. And that starts with an awareness in the teacher, like you said, and then how it best translates to their particular group of students. Uh, So we keep talking. uh, So in light of what the grants really speak to, let's skip ahead to the scoring criteria. You said that Fund for Teachers is nationally unique in that we start with what the teacher needs. And I think we're also nationally unique in that we publish on our website the scoring criteria. It's it's the ultimate open book test because any teacher who is applying can see how their proposal will be critiqued. And so, Stephanie, we also have curated some valuable resources on our online application center on our website at fundforteachers.org to make this process as transparent as possible. And I would say the most valuable thing on, on that toolkit is the scoring criteria. You said that we're nationally unique and that we start with the teacher first, and the teacher is always our focus. But we also are nationally unique in, in that we give the teachers the criteria by which their proposal will be judged. So it's this ultimate open book test. But can you tell us a little bit about how using that criteria can translate to a successful proposal and, and how teachers can best mine that criteria to craft a proposal that really speaks to the selection committee? So there's two things I would really ask applicants to focus on when it comes to that resource of the scoring criteria. The first is I think it's really helpful to know who is reviewing your proposal. And then I can give you some advice on how best to use the criteria in your preparation. But if we start with who is reviewing applications, who's using this criteria, and ultimately 
who are you really writing your proposal for? Who's the audience? Most people would be surprised to know that it's not just our core team randomly picking applications, that this is really a community-based effort. And what I mean by that is, is that we create communities of readers to review all of the proposals that we receive. When you're writing your proposal, I want you to think about who makes up that community. The first and foremost to us that's always at the center of our work is the teacher. So we utilize past grant recipients to be the voice of other educators. They're your peer on this committee. They can help other readers really understand what's happening in the classroom or what you might mean by certain things in your proposal. The second kind of person you need to be aware of, a reader of this community is, we try to get someone from the district or a school administrative level. So think about principals, superintendents, maybe the district grant coordinator, someone whose interest is in the benefit to their community and to their students. So think about them while you're writing. While, again, the cornerstone of our work is the teacher, they're really looking for what's the benefit to the student. And then lastly, we like to have members of the general community. So maybe not someone who's necessarily a classroom teacher or who's in the education world every day, but someone who just has a vested interest in what's happening in schools and communities. That could be a donor. So think about an individual community member, a volunteer. It could be someone from a corporate environment, from any kind of background you can imagine, legal, oil and gas, banking, you, you name it, we'll have that kind of uh, community member volunteer. And I really want to focus on them for a moment because I think that sometimes in education, we kind of get stuck in our own world and we speak this language that a lot of people outside of education don't understand. And so when you're writing and you're thinking about these groups, you know you've got the backup of that fellow behind you. You know what district administrators expect of you. But a community member doesn't really speak the language. I think you'd be surprised to find out that a lot of community members don't even know what, what does Title I mean? What is a lesson plan? What is curriculum? What is a PLC? That doesn't mean that you can't use that language, but you need to take a brief moment to explain what you mean by that. One of my favorite examples that we used to see a long time ago in our proposal, um, but it still kind of resonates today, is a lot of applicants were talking about graphic organizers. Now, like you said, I've been doing this for a long time. I still don't know what a graphic organizer is. And I'm in education. I'm in and around it. But imagine a non-educator coming to read these proposals and it's just like so foreign to them. So keep that person in mind while you're reading, while you're writing your application, because you need to make it as clear as possible for them as well. So knowing who those people are, you can prepare your application for them. So the second thing that I would give you advice on is how to use the scoring criteria. So you know who's reading it, but how do you really use that criteria to your advantage? Put it up next to the application question. You know what we're asking you. Now you know, looking at the scoring criteria, what particular detail in those questions is most important to us. And that's great for you as the writer. But then the best way you can use the scoring criteria is to give it to other people who review your proposal. Now, our moms, our grandmas, our friends, they want to be nice to us. Everything, you know, we do is great in their eyes, right? But if you give them a scoring criteria and you're not getting the full points in some section, something is missing. <laughs> so take that feedback from them. Yes, go to your English teacher on your campus for the grammar and the spelling and construction. But also remember those other readers on the committee, those non-educators. Do you have a friend or a family member who's not in education that you can give them your proposal along with that scoring criteria and ask them, 
you know, what's not making sense? What's not clear? What can I improve upon? And if they don't hear anything else I say today, Carrie, I want them to remember this. Please write your proposal in a word processor. It makes it a lot easier to share when you're trying to get feedback, when you're sending it out with that scoring criteria. But also there's like a thousand people on our website at any given time trying to submit an application. Things are slow. Things don't save. Your internet goes out. You don't want to lose all that hard work because you put it directly into our system instead of writing it in a word processor and then copying and pasting it into our system. I think the things that you just said are just gold from a from a macro level down to this very important tip. Are there some suggestions that you have from a technical standpoint? Starting early getting on the application, like getting on our website early, making yourself comfortable with it. There's nothing like being at the 11th hour and you can't figure out how to register. And you're probably doing that at midnight when I'm not available to help you. So I would say start early. You don't need to do it all in one sitting. You can come Mm -hmm. in and out as you want. Get comfortable with it. So when you are under pressure, that's not the thing that you're feeling worried by or concerned by. Using the resources we've given you, all of them, you know, a recorded info session, the scoring criteria that we talked about, our project search, look at what other teachers have done, listen to this podcast, go to social media. All of those are things that will help prepare you to submit the best application on a very technical level. Please read the directions. (laughs) That's probably the number one tip I can give you. Like we've really given you all these resources and it's really up to you to use them. And it starts from when you register. And so, you know, really reading and following through is probably the number one thing I could tell you. And when teachers do log on and register, they will see a cover page. Yes, our application is three sections. And I just want to say that everything is online. You don't need to mail us anything. You don't need to attach your resume. You don't do any of that. Everything is one-stop shop online. But it is three sections. And the first section is the cover sheet that you're referring to. This is how we know who you are. This is how we know if you're eligible. Um, And this is the only part that requires someone else's support. So as soon as you complete the cover sheet, it's sent to your principal for not approval of your project, not permission to apply, but just saying Stephanie is who she says she is. She meets Fund for Teachers eligibility requirements. And that's a digital signature. We send them a link. They click it you're done. I'll interrupt you quickly to say that once you submit that or start that cover sheet and you give us the principal's email, our system automatically sends that to your principal. Yes, it's automatic. It happens the same second you sign your cover sheet, it's sent to them. And that's something that I think a lot of people panic about, Carrie, is their principal doesn't sign right away. So I just want to reassure applicants that We will harass your principal until we get that signature. We don't want anyone not to go through the process because of that. And so we will call, we will email. That is not something you need to worry about. We take care of it. And so don't let that be a stressor in the process for you. I remember in the past, we've had some teachers uh, reach out to you and say, I don't have a good relationship with my principal. Our principal doesn't want us to do this type of professional development, whatever the the comment might be. And your Mm -hmm. response to that has been that we'll work with you to find the right person to sign. It does need to be someone from your district above you. It doesn't necessarily have to be your principal. And in those cases, if you just communicate with us, we will we will make it happen. We'll make something work. Great. A trend that you've shared with us in our staff meeting is that you're seeing an increase in teachers in different, not just different schools or different districts, but in different states collaborating mm-hmm on a project. And I um, 
I've been here for, I guess, about 14 or 15 years. And that day of the submissions, we have a lot of panic calls. And um, the one that I remember most frequently happening is with the cover sheet. And there is a team and people have had some issues with entering their proposals with a team lead and the cover sheet. Can you kind of speak to that? So our grant is also unique in that we do allow for team applications, and that can be two or more eligible teachers. And as you touched on, that's in any school, any state, any city, you don't have to teach in the same building. Um, We want to encourage collaboration in any way that you can. But the team process is a little different than individuals in that teams only submit one proposal, just like an individual, but we need to be able to collect the information about each team member. So that cover sheet we talked about earlier. And the way that we connect your application is through a team name. So you'll, as a team, you need to do a couple more things before you start the process is determine who's on your team, understand that every person on that team is financially responsible for the total grant award. It's not just the team lead. Everyone has a vested interest in the process. They're an active participant and that they understand that. And then you want to determine what's my team name and who's going to be the team lead. I want to just say that the team lead is not any more important than anyone else on the team. They're just the one that's going to enter your proposal. So to start, you do those things to start your process. But the first person who needs to register with us is the team lead. They create the team name. And then subsequently, each team member will follow the team lead and complete their own cover sheet. Now they're only doing their cover sheet. And the thing that you're kind of talking about people panicking is that the team lead cannot submit the proposal until every team member has done their cover sheet. And that's something that kind of holds people up. And so I would just be keeping that in mind in your process. That's what I mean by getting online early and often so that you know what these obligations are and you're not at the 11th hour panicking because somebody didn't sign their cover sheet. Another thing that trips up teachers is this character count, that you can do a word count in uh, Microsoft Word, and then you you put it into the application, and then you're missing the last three sentences or something. Can you talk about the character count? It's a little bit of an inside joke. We don't know why our original programmer picked characters with spaces as the the counting mechanism in our system. So it's 25,000 characters with spaces. And it's really important that you remember that with spaces because 25,000 characters with spaces is a lot less than 25,000 words. So when you're in Word or your Google Doc, make sure that you are looking at that characters with spaces. And then when you go to copy it into our system, we do have a counter at the bottom. So you're aware of where you are, but definitely again, doing it in a word processor is going to really save you a lot of heartache if you do it there first to know what you got. Any other tips? I think a lot of people get so excited about the process and about the chance to do this, that they kind of just skip through some really important details. And sometimes those details are the difference between being eligible or not, or getting it submitted or not. This country has four time zones, right? So our application is due at 5 p.m. Central, not Eastern, not Mountain, not Pacific. It's 5 p.m. Central. And that's a huge thing that people just gloss over. And then it's five o'clock in California and oh, the application is closed. So remember those, those details are important. And that's why I think getting into the system, reading all the things we've prepared for you, you know, sometimes it feels overwhelming the amount of information we provide, but we do it because we know it's valuable and it saves your time and ours. So It's really important that you get in there, get in often, feel comfortable with the system and know what is expected of you in the process. Perfect. So 
we have our, our applicants who have listened to this podcast, who have taken advantage of all of the resources on our online application center, have done their due diligence, have had people proof their proposal for any acronyms or words like pedagogy that might not resonate with someone not in the education profession, and they have hit submit. We get two questions. One immediately, which is understandable, is when am I going to know if I'm awarded? And what, what date is that, Stephanie? So all applicants are notified. So whether you're awarded or not, we will notify you by email to the email address you registered with on March 28th. They're rolling throughout the day. So don't panic if you don't get something in the morning. And I really want to focus in on that, the email address that you registered with. That is going to be the primary place that we contact you for all member teachers related business. So a good check, and I'm sorry to hijack this, Carrie, but a good check for us is if you have not received a confirmation email from Fund for Teachers, whether when you registered, when you submitted, if you've never seen anything like that, that likely means that our email is going to your spam or your junk. And we do find that a lot with districts. So just so you know, if you have not been getting those emails, you're probably not going to get the notification email. So go back through, find when you know you registered, when you submitted, and get those whitelisted or um, marked as clean emails in your district. So you make sure you get that notification on the 28th. Such good information. And to have the best chance of getting a congratulations you or a 2023 Fun for Teachers Fellow email, what would you suggest, again, from a macro level, that teachers really focus on in this proposal? There's no magic answer to that, but I think that there are a few things that really stand out in a, in a funded proposal. The first would be the passion of the, of the applicant for their project. If this is just something that you kind of think is a good idea, or maybe someone else told you you should do, it's very obvious in the narrative that this is not a project that you really, you know, you feel totally bought into. And so if you don't, why would the reader? And so they're looking for that from you. Now, that's not something that I think that you can write in words necessarily, but it's an energy your proposal has. And I just want to say that doesn't mean that you have to be this the best writer ever. I'm a terrible writer, but I could also probably tell you when I'm really excited about something. So don't feel like you need to be this amazing narrative writer. It's not about that. It's about convincing the reader that you really truly believe this is going to be life-changing and career-changing for you and your students. And if you don't have that kind of passion, it's very clear to the reader. The second thing that I think really makes the difference is the amount of detail that applicants include. Um, this is very competitive. This is not something that you can just answer the question rotely. Like you're not going to just answer the questions we asked with one sentence and move on. You really need to paint the full picture for the reader of why this project matters to your students, why this project matters to you, how it's going to impact them, and what problem it's solving. And if you can't do that in a narrative, then I just don't think you're going to be successful. You can't leave readers with any questions. That doesn't mean you give a full history lesson on whatever it is you're studying or a math lesson or art history. You know, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is they shouldn't be left with any questions about the goals, about why the, the avenue or the road that you've chosen to go down is the best to answer the questions that you put forward. And so detail is really important. In one week's time, all of the teachers who have spent sometimes a year, sometimes two years, three years, if they've not been awarded, their work will be done and our work and our selection committee's work will begin. 
And is there anything that you would like to end this podcast with, with letting people know what the, what the intervening months will be like and, and, um, and kind of what's going on on the back end while they, while they wait, what's, what's happening with us and, and our teams. Sure. So Fund for Teachers is really small. I just want to say that. I know people think it's a long wait between January and March, but we really do take great care in processing applications and making sure everyone has fair entry into the process. And so we go through many reviews. We make sure you've submitted every section. We want you to be successful. And that takes time. Know that we are diligently working on processing that. And I know that it's really hard to wait, um, but it's worth the wait. And I also just want to say to applicants who are listening, that if you're not awarded, I know that it's discouraging. It's discouraging to us. We wish that we had infinite funding to fund everyone who comes to us because we know how passionate you are. We know how invested you are. And it hurts us as much as it hurts you that we can't fund you. But don't let that be a discouragement from applying again or applying at all. We're often asked, you know, what is, what's the data? How many do you fund a year? And it's like, there's no clear answer to that. And I know that that seems like a cop-out, but I can't answer that for you because every year we have a different number of applications. We have a different number of teams versus individuals. We have funders come and go. There's no magic answer I can give you. But what I can tell you is you won't know the potential you have if you don't try. And I know this isn't a consolation to people who aren't awarded, but we hear so often from applicants that just going through the process really changed something in them that they thought more deeply about themselves and their students. And even if they don't get the fellowship, they have this like renewed vigor and energy and excitement about going back into the classroom. And while that's not a grant, that's still something to be proud of. And I just want to encourage applicants that the wait is worth it trying is worth it and that you won't know if you don't try. You tell our students that. So apply that kind of grace to yourself. I want to end on a hopeful note for these applicants. What can you say that teachers can really look forward to as an impact of their fellowship? It's all the things you don't know are possible. So much of what is good about their experience is what they could never have planned for. And that can be life-changing for them as people, but it's also career-changing. It might put them on a new path, a new passion. And so that's always the biggest feedback we get. But I also just want to say that we hear so often that teachers are not treated like professionals and that working with Fun for Teachers makes them feel this renewed sense of professionalism and achievement for themselves. And just knowing that there's someone out there that is respectful of them and trusts them. And I want you to leave your full experience with Fun for Teachers, whether it's going through the application, whether you're funded or not, that you feel that and you know that we have complete respect for you and your work. And we want you to feel that in every aspect of what we do. I know that that's a big takeaway for a lot of our teachers we work with. Thank you to Fun for Teachers Chief of Staff, Stephanie Asherill, for joining us today. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from more than 9,000 Fund for Teachers fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org blog, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Most importantly today, good luck to each of you who have already submitted your proposal or will by January the 19th at 5 p.m. Central. And congratulations also to each applicant who, amidst the ever-challenging world of education, took the time and made the effort to reflect on what you can control 
yourself and your growth personally and professionally. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fun for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.